Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. In the verses just before this, <clears throat> Paul gave some instruction to men for how they're to behave when they come to public worship. And then he says this, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and in love and holiness with self-control. Let the epitaph on my gravestone read, with just months to go in his tenure as senior pastor, he dared to preach on 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15. And by the way, if you have problems with today's message, you can send your complaints to joe at baysidechapel.org. There is no way to preach a passage like this without getting somebody upset or mad, and so the tendency is to avoid it altogether. But we're known here at Bayside for preaching consecutively through the scriptures, and so you probably would have noticed if we had skipped from verse 8 right straight to chapter 3. And that's the benefit and the curse of preaching consecutively through scripture. You can't avoid the hard stuff. You can't act as if it isn't there. You can't pretend God didn't say it. And you can't just say what's popular or politically correct. You've got to wrestle with what's in the text. And where this passage is concerned, what it forces you to wrestle with is the role of women in the church. Women I know have reported all kinds of experiences in church, some good and some not so good. For instance, when Diane and I moved to Minnesota years ago, she was scouting out churches in our neighborhood where we lived to see where we might land and make our home church, while some of those Sundays I was off preaching somewhere else, and so she would attend church by herself, and she'd come home and say, Dave, it's just so sad. When I go to these churches, it's like they don't even see me. When you're with me, it's a whole different story. We get noticed, but when I'm there as a woman by myself, it's like I'm not even there. Another woman who is enormously gifted, in fact, she has a PhD, a brilliant woman, who is ready and willing to use her gifts in a church, but has struggled for years to find a church that knows what to do with her. She feels frustrated and underutilized. Another woman reports having felt shunned in a church because in her curiosity to learn, 
in a Sunday school class, she asked some questions that other people found threatening, and many women will report feeling shamed and unwelcome in churches because of struggling with a mental health issue. Now, I know that men also have issues when it comes to feeling at home in church, but I think that for women, they have more than their fair share. And too often, because the passage I just read is not understood well, it's used as justification for women being marginalized in their own churches. But women, though what Paul says here at first reading may turn you off or make you hopping mad, I'm convinced that in reality what he's saying is that a woman's place is in the church. In the context of his first letter to his younger colleague Timothy, the Apostle Paul is coaching Timothy about how to handle a challenging situation in the church at Ephesus. And so in chapter 1, the focus was on the gospel, and, and Timothy was encouraged to make people stop teaching speculative and legalistic things. And then he talks about how God's grace has power to transform even the worst of sinners, Paul himself being exhibit A. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul took up the subject of public worship and who we should pray for when we come to worship and why we should pray for them that way. And then he ended the passage last week by talking about how men should conduct themselves when the church is gathered. And having addressed men, Paul then goes on to address women as they come to engage in public worship, making sure that they know that they too are welcome. A woman's place is in the church. And notice not just in the church kitchen or the church nursery. And by the way, men should be serving in those places too. A woman's involvement in the life of a local church should result in her growth and fruitfulness as a follower of Christ. Women should flourish and the church should be blessed as they exercise the gifts that God has given them. But just as men were told in the previous passage how they should behave when they come to church, so in this passage Paul shows us how women should come to church by way of what I'm calling three invitations. Three invitations in this passage that demonstrate that a woman's place is in the church. The first invitation is this, make a priority of godliness rather than glamour. Make a priority of godliness rather than glamour. In a healthy church, the good works that flow from a godly life are prized over good looks that turn heads. He says in verses 9 and 10, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. In other words, don't dress too suggestively, uh, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this is not to say that a woman, or a man for that matter, should pay no attention to their grooming or attire, but that it shouldn't become an obsession. The kind of braiding of hair that Paul is talking about here was an obsession, a particular obsession of rich women in the first century Roman world where they would literally spend the whole day having somebody braid their hair, weaving in strands of gold or pearls, and then you add to that an expensive gown and she was sure to attract attention and be admired for her beauty. And Paul says, don't worry about that when you come to church. You know, similarly, the world may tell you today that if you don't look smoking hot, you're not worth much. Women are encouraged to obsess over their appearance as if their worth depended on it. There's a book by 
an author, Kathy O'Neill, the title is The Shame Machine, in which she talks about how certain industries rely on shame to sell their products, and one of the examples is the Kim Kardashian empire. She talks about how Kardashian's body is central to both her brand and her commercial empire. It's very profitable, her sale of makeup and lipstick and other cosmetics. By April of 2021, she was a billionaire. The founding assumption of her business is that looks are not God-given. It's a never-ending job, and it's expensive. And one branch of her enterprise involves pitching shells of products designed to help lesser mortals achieve the perfection of the Kardashian body. For a single Instagram post, she might make a half million dollars. She pops up on millions of feeds promoting appetite-suppressing lollipops, 14-day detox programs, and many other offerings. And here's what O'Neill concludes. She says, she sells fantasy, and the marketing is based on shame. Having anything less than a dream body is a choice. If you don't like what you were born with, you can fix it. It's up to you. This is a powerful message, especially for young women. Their anxiety regarding these issues is unrelenting, and it begins early. O'Neill says, these fears fuel endless businesses, uh, business for sex goddesses like Kim Kardashian. To inch closer to their ideal, millions of women strive, worry, work out, diet, buy all kinds of branded garbage, and yet never achieve their goal of looking like her. Many of them feel like wrecks. Beauty has long been the perfect scam, an inexhaustible shame machine. I think what Paul is showing us in this passage is that none of that should matter when you come to church. A healthy church is not, going, uh, is not going to judge you by that. A healthy church is going to say, forget about all that. When you come here, you're not going to be measured by how perfect your hair is, how com- clear your complexion is, whether you write, wear the right labels or how well you fit in your jeans. What we care about here is your growth in Christ. Whether you grasp who you are in Jesus whether you understand not only that you've been saved from judgment by God's grace, but how you've been empowered to live a new life by God's grace, whether you're learning to say no to the sins that once held you in their grasp and are learning to surrender more and more to the work of the Spirit of God in your life, whether your life in Christ is bearing fruit as evidenced in good works. A woman's place is in the church because the church should be that one place where she can relax and not worry she's going to be judged by her appearance, but rather helped on her journey to an inner beauty that never fades and can never be taken away. Now, admittedly, not all churches are like that, and maybe we have some work to do on that here at Bayside as well, but let's do that work together to ensure that our church is not a place where women are judged by their looks, but rather are prized for their godliness. A woman's place is in the church. And so the first invitation is make a priority of godliness rather than glamour. Here's the second invitation. Come learn, quiet in heart, letting go of the need to control. Come learn, quiet in heart, letting go of the need to control. In verse 11, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now in the most of the rest of your life, That's just not possible because for many women, there's no opportunity to learn because there are all these people you're teaching all the time, all these little people in your lives, and and you may feel exhausted from trying to teach your husband all that he doesn't seem to understand. (laughs) 
And there's no quiet in your life because you're always surrounded by so much noise and submissiveness. You think, ha, not as long as it's up to me to bring order out of this family chaos. If I don't take control, this place will be a mess. I'm sure women in the classroom in the workplace often experience the same thing. But Paul is saying to women, when you come to the public worship gathering of your church, here is a place where you can quiet your heart, let someone else feed your spirit by speaking God's word to you, and don't worry if everything's not quite perfect because you don't have to be in charge. In fact, Paul says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, it's important to remember the context here. Paul is talking about the public service of worship. When Christians come together like this, he's not making a blanket statement about every situation. He's not saying that women can't be leaders in industry or business and they can't be leaders in politics or other spheres of influence. He's he's saying when you come to church, come with a quiet heart, ready to learn, letting go of the need to be in control. It's not a blanket statement about every situation. We know, for instance, that in Scripture, Priscilla and Aquila both taught Apollos, a man who was... They, they met in a synagogue and they heard him speaking about Christ and yet there were some things that he didn't quite understand. So after the synagogue was over, they pulled him aside and, and quietly instructed him together in the ways of God, presumably in their own home. So Priscilla was part of that process of teaching Aquila, but it wasn't in the public worship service. Nor is it saying that women should never open their mouths when the church is gathered in worship. We know, for instance, in 1 Corinthians that Paul gives specific instructions for those times when women are expected to participate out loud in worship, in times of prayer, or even in offering prophecies. But by pairing teach with exercise authority, do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority, many scholars believe that what Paul is talking about here is the equivalent of the sermon, where the most authoritative teaching of the church takes place where God-ordained elders, pastors who are charged with the spiritual well-being of the flock declare God's word with authority, not just to the women gathered, but to the men. Paul says, "I, I don't want a woman to take on that responsibility. Leave that for the pastors and elders. It's their job as as, as shepherds of the flock. It's no coincidence, by the way, that the qualifications of elders is the very next topic he brings up. In other words, this, this is such a responsibility of such importance that you'd better make sure that your elders are these kinds of people. We'll be talking about that next week. And you might say, but why? I mean, if a woman is a good preacher, why shouldn't she be allowed to preach? As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I've taught homiletics preaching classes in seminaries, and we've had women in my classes, some of whom were the best preachers in the class. So why not women? Well, because Paul grounds it, this instruction, in the very order of creation. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. You know, there are two places in Scripture where God says that men should lead, and they're the two institutions God has ordained for our well-being, the family and the church. And this order of things, Paul says, goes all the way back to creation. When Adam was created first and then Eve was created to be a helper or an ally for him. We would argue that there's an essential equality of women and men before God with respect to salvation. We're all saved the same way through God's grace by faith in Christ. Paul says in in Galatians 3 that in Christ there is no male or female. But for the sake of the order and health of the family, Paul also says 
that for the sake of the health and order of the family and the health and order of the church, God says to the husband, you be the leader. And he says to men he appoints as elders in the church, you shepherd the flock. You are ultimately responsible before God for its welfare. And then Paul reminds us that when men fail to lead in these arenas, it doesn't go well. He says in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is speaking of that, that fall of mankind into sin in Genesis 3, that unfortunate situation where Adam abdicated his leadership. He apparently wasn't paying attention when the serpent was deceiving his wife. And so Eve took the fruit and ate of it and then gave it to Adam. And he apparently, knowing full well what it was, went and ate it anyway because his wife gave it to him. And now we're all implicated in Adam's sin. So Paul invites women to come to church, quiet their hearts, ready to learn, letting go of the need to control. Because the Lord knows this may be the only place in your life where you're allowed to do that. Let me explain this way. I was a member of the Newtown Rotary Club in Newtown, Pennsylvania for over 20 years. And I can remember way back in 1989, seems like ancient history now, 1989, Rotary International mandated that women should be allowed as members of Rotary Clubs worldwide. Boy, you should have heard the men grouse about that. The old guys in the club were like, what's this world coming to? Women in Rotary? I'm not sure I even want to be a member of Rotary anymore. Well, the international organization said that we had to admit women, so they started admitting women to the Newtown Rotary Club. And guess what happened? The president would say, we need somebody to lead this fundraiser. We need somebody to, to uh, put together this, uh, this function. And guess whose hands went up first? The women, right? And boy, did the old guys change their tune. You know what they were saying? Ain't it great having the gals in the club? They're doing all the work. <laughs> women, you do realize, don't you, that many men will let you do for them whatever you volunteer to do. And so when men abdicate their spiritual leadership of the family and get lazy about teaching the kids about Jesus and leading the family in prayer and making sure the family is getting to church, what often happens, not always, but what often happens is that the more spiritually mature wife then takes that on herself on top of everything else she does at home and eventually she becomes exhausted trying to overcome her husband's spiritual inertia and the kids are saying, why should I have to go to church if dad doesn't go to church? And eventually the whole family becomes to church. When men abdicate spiritual leadership in the home, you most often end up with frustrated wives, weak husbands, and unbelieving children. Similarly, in the church, God ordains that men called as elders and pastors should bear the ultimate responsibility, accountability for the well-being of the church. And when men abdicate that responsibility and put it on women to lead, you typically will find a church populated by industrious but enormously frustrated women who are wondering where all the men have gone. And by the way, where did our kids go? And this is happening in churches all across America. So like it or not, Bayside is a church where we are persuaded that men should occupy the office of pastor, elder, that men should teach and exercise authority in the pulpit, not because we're chauvinistic and think that men can do it better than women, but because God's word speaks plainly and says this should be the order of things. Now let me acknowledge that men in church leadership have too often abused the office and have treated women as second-class citizens or diminished the ways that God has gifted them, 
Scripture makes clear that when you're in a position of spiritual authority, you're not to use that authority to lord it over others, but to serve them. And the metaphor that God uses to describe the leadership of men he puts in, in charge of the church is the metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. And shepherds are to care for their sheep and to protect their sheep and to lead their sheep and to feed their sheep. And if if women aren't flourishing in church, being well-fed and cared for and feeling protected, then something's wrong. We have amazingly gifted women here at Bayside, women who are great teachers and leaders in various aspects of our ministry. And I think our job as pastors and elders is not to hold women back and tell them to stop using their gifts, but to help them flourish in exercising those gifts. But where Sunday worship is concerned, Paul says to women, come learn, quiet in heart, letting go of the need to control. Let this be a time and place where God's shepherds can feed you and care for you for a change. Now, I often charge men when I do a wedding, I tell the the groom, it's your job to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I believe that few women will ever have a hard time following the lead of a man who is lovingly devoted to doing that. Similarly, women will be much more inclined to follow the leadership of pastors and elders who are dedicated to serving and lovingly caring for them as members of the flock. A woman's place is in the church. So Paul invites, make a priority of godliness rather than glamour. Come learn, quiet in heart, letting go of the need to control. And then here's the third invitation he makes in this passage, and that is view your womanhood as an opportunity, not a curse. View your womanhood as an opportunity, not a curse. Paul's mention in verse 14 of Eve's part in mankind's fall into sin raises a a very unpleasant memory, and that's the memory of the curse that God lays on Adam and Eve in the garden because they have sinned. And so God says to Adam that because he listened to Eve and ate the forbidden fruit that the earth would no longer easily yield up its sustenance. He would have to work by the sweat of his brow, tilling the soil, fighting thorns and thistles to have any bread to eat. And to Eve, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, you're going to want to be the boss of your husband, but he won't let you, which is why marriage counselors will always be in demand. (laughs) But also, not only are you the one who will bear the children, but it's also going to hurt. I mean, really hurt. A lot. And so many women view their womanhood as a curse. I wish I were a man. They have it so easy. Among other things, they don't struggle with the complications of being born with female anatomy, nor do they have to bear the pain of childbearing. And and the world reinforces the idea that women are cursed. If having a baby is going to hold you back in the work world or disadvantage you economically or inconvenience you in any way that you don't want to accept, then you should have the right to abort that pregnancy, get rid of that, that baby. Abortion is one of the ways the world proposes undoing the curse. But Paul says, yeah, it, it can seem like being a woman is a curse. Yet, he says in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's something occurred to me this week, and, and that is that in the garden, God not only cursed Adam and Eve, but he made a promise to them in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember the promise? That some descendant of Eve, 
one of her seed, one of her offspring, would be the one who would crush Satan's head, crush the head of the serpent. That some daughter of Eve, somewhere down the line, would bear a child who would be the Messiah, the Savior, who would ultimately defeat Satan. And do you realize that as Adam and Eve were being kicked out of the garden in shame, that they left with that promise And I wonder if Adam left with the awareness that his redemption was ultimately dependent upon Eve's ability to bear children. That generation after generation of women would bear children until Mary would finally give birth to Jesus who would crush the head of the evil one. There's a dignity and nobility about that that we often miss and that is that that women as women have a part of God's amazing plan of our redemption. The church is one of the few places in the world where where that will be affirmed, where your womanhood will be truly affirmed. Yes, all women suffer the consequences of Eve's sin, but our message is that God can redeem all that. Now, admittedly, scholars are divided over exactly what does Paul mean when he says, yet she will be saved through childbirth. There are at least four different ways of reading that, and none of them are without problems. The one thing that is clear is he's not saving that women will be saved from their sins by bearing children, as if to say, you've got to have a child or you're not going to be saved. He's not saying that. Because it's clear, even here in the text where he talks about faith, that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again to give us new life in him. I think what he's saying here is that what the woman is being saved from is this sense of cursedness and the suggestion of the world that somehow being a woman puts you at a disadvantage and that if you're just a mom, you haven't done much with your life. I think what Paul is saying is that a woman will find her greatest satisfaction and and meaning in life in participating in this redemptive plan of God, not in resenting that she is a woman but in in trying to be like a man, but in becoming the woman God has made her to be in Christ, one who is characterized by faith and love and holiness and self-control. As someone has put it, we serve a God who created our humanity, weeps at the fall of our humanity, became our humanity, and is redeeming our humanity. Being in Christ means that you don't have to be angry and resentful about your lot as a woman as the world wants you to be. Being a woman who is in Christ empowers you to produce the beautiful fruit of God's spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Church is a place where your womanhood will be viewed as an opportunity, not a curse, an opportunity to become a woman exuding the beauty of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, not all churches led by men send that message. They teach that women are subservient and need to be kept in their place. Let's make sure we send a different message here. That women, too, are heirs of grace, co-heirs with Christ, and are gifted by God to live great and beautiful lives. A woman's place is in the church. And I hope you can hear Paul's teaching today not as a prohibition, but as an invitation. I hope you can hear the invitation to be released of the pressure of measuring up by making a priority of godliness over glamour. I hope you can hear the invitation to be released of the pressure of bearing impossible burdens by coming here to learn quiet in heart, letting go of the need to control. 
I hope you can hear the invitation in this passage to be released of the resentment the world teaches you to have of your gender by viewing your womanhood as an opportunity, not a curse. Now, we live in a weird and confusing world these days in which men claim to be women and we're expected to go along with that. And women are told, if you don't like being a woman, you can be a man. And now we're being told, in fact, that men make the best women. You know, if, if you pay attention to USA Today to be woman of the year, or you pay attention to the NCAA to be a championship swimmer, it helps to be a man identifying as a woman. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the world has gone crazy when it can't even tell us what a woman is anymore? Though it will be unpopular and we'll get slammed for it, let God's church be an island of sanity where we continue to affirm that God made us male and he made us female, blessing us with differences to be celebrated and enjoyed. And he was the one who declared it very good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great wisdom in making us male and female to make us with these, these differences. Though we are equal in Christ, thank you for making us with differences to be appreciated and celebrated and enjoyed. I thank you, Lord, for the women of Bayside, for the amazing ways that you have gifted so many of our women, for the way they serve you so faithfully. And Lord, we ask your blessing on each and every woman who walks through these doors, that this would be an inviting place for them and not a place where they feel marginalized or kicked to the curb. But rather we play that this would be a place where women flourish and grow and exude the beauty of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.